Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 42, Wired for Addiction with Dr. Evelyn Higgins. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mine Out Emotional Wellness Center in Texas. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we interview Dr. Evelyn Higgins about the work she is doing on the genetics of addiction and how she uses it to bring hope and offer help through her company, Wired for Addiction. She also talks about some of the personal journey that led to her interest in helping those with addiction and their families. All this and more after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. Without any further ado, let's go straight to our interview. All right. Well, welcome to the show. If you want to take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience and let us know what are you doing on a show called Addiction and the Family? Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate this opportunity. My name is Dr. Evelyn Higgins, currently doing a lot of different things, but I am a diplomat in addictionology and compulsive disorders. And that practice has been going on in my world for over 30 years. Started out in the integrative medicine slash disability area, actually practicing as a chiropractor 35 years ago, and was in a very rural area where there were no resources for addiction. 
and I was having people come in, you know, and at that time people were becoming somewhat dependent on meds. And then 20 years later, I'm practicing in an urban area and I'm seeing that shift go from dependent to addicted because people were being treated with the try this, try that approach to pain meds, things like that. So that's part of my career. And then from that 32 years on, got into the addiction world and just went through a certified addictionologist to the current diplomate. But in doing that, there was also a personal reason. I married a man who is an alcoholic. And a year after our daughter was born, found out that he was adopted. I had no family health history. So I now am savvy in science to know, like, I need to know what's going on here. You know, what's his background? What's the family health history? And I started seeing his behaviors. I'm like, okay, I need to know what I can do for my daughter this early in the game because of what I was seeing with him. And that kind of led us to where we are today. We have a company called Wired for Addiction. And we look at 85 different biomarkers related to mental health and substance use and abuse. So it's been an evolution, to say the least, as I introduce myself to you, Casey. It's kind of like all of these things just continue to build and build. And we're in a world where addiction and mental health is paramount to everything else that's happening all around us. So I just saw this 35 years ago, get to the point of where it is today, step by step by step, and the explosion that of where we are now. I was going to ask you kind of what personally drew you into the field. You talked about that a little bit. Yep. I have to wonder, is there any experience that you're aware of, of any sort of addictive behavior within your own family before you married your husband? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when it's the interesting part, Casey, which, you know, this is your thing of specifically looking at the family, is that when you're in it until you're out of it, you don't know that this is not the normal behavior. Every holiday doesn't have to end with an explosion from some relative or, you know, whatever the case may be, someone needing the spotlight, all of those things that go along with it. But when you're immersed in that, you don't really know that there's a different way. People actually live differently than that. So, yes, yes, I did. And that's pretty common, as we know, and some family members may be more aware of this or less. So I'm going to go ahead and say it for the program is that a lot of times we're drawn back to those things because we have grown up around it. And one big thing that I see in working with families is sometimes, and this speaks to the genetics among other things, we can see the addiction or other mental health disorders skip a generation or two, so to speak. They don't fully blossom, but the family patterns still get passed down through every generation. Mm -hmm. So people still learn how to not talk about it outside the house. They still learn how to put up with behavior they shouldn't put up with, this sort of thing. And then they meet somebody who is maybe an active addiction or more prone to it. And we just think there's just something about them or, you know, there's that spark and we really connect and we don't even know why we're connecting until much later. And I wonder, I see you kind of nodding along with that. Would you be able to speak to a little bit of that experience for yourself? Sure. Kind of like, you know, even down to, is that what love is? You know, if you've experienced siblings, that behave in such a way and there's you know love hate relationships we'll say and there's alcohol infused within that when you meet this individual it's like oh i know this i i'm already familiar i love this and it's already kind of programmed into you maybe a strong but it becomes a perfect storm 
right? It's like, that's your comfort zone, whether you know it or not, because you think you know how to navigate through such behavior. Absolutely. And it reminds me of really the genetic piece as well. Something I often say to my clients and the family members around genetics is that genetics are not fate, mm -hmm. but they are tendency. Correct. And to an extent, potential. Correct. And so in the same way, growing up socially in an environment where addiction and mental health issues are somewhat normalized or almost expected, maybe feared, but still expected, Right. that it still sets us up to have a tendency to fall back into those same patterns ourselves. And I think that's part of what makes your work with the genetics so powerful. You talked a little bit about kind of what drew you into the genetic piece specifically. You want to give us a little more detail on that? Sure. So as I said, with my daughter now, I was like, okay, we had no family history because this was the family secret that my husband was adopted. Even before our wedding, like things didn't add up to me. And I said, are you adopted? And he was like, well, why would you say that? I'm like, because nothing's adding up. I just have this gut feeling. Well, I was right. But he actually did ask and was told no. <laughs> so it became this double down of the lie, which was insane. So after my daughter is born, that's when the cat came out of the bag by a different relative on his side who said, you know, Evelyn, I, I wanted to let you know this, but he goes, actually at your wedding, my husband's parents were fighting over who wanted to tell me and who didn't at the actual event. And you know what? Adoption is a beautiful thing. Would have said that is your family, right? Those are your parents. But this is something that should be shared because there are genetic links to things. There is a health history that people need to know. So that genetic part became important for me to find out for my daughter. As the technology evolved in this area, so did I in what I was doing and what I was doing for us and what I saw as a bigger picture of being able to create. Example, I started looking at neurotransmitters, brain chemicals 17 years ago because that technology was available. But that was the only piece, looking at things like serotonin, dopamine, phenylethylalanine, all of those chemicals. Those were measurable. So that's where I started. It was only in tail end of 2014, beginning of 2015, that the technology was available to look at things called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. That's where there's an error in someone's coding. But that technology wasn't available back 17 years ago. It's just, you know, within recent history. So I started putting all of these things together to identify, isolate, and be able to measure specific biomarkers. And when we go over this with the individual, oftentimes there's tears, but tears of relief. Because you're like, you are describing exactly how I feel. And, and I never knew how to share this with someone. Their loved ones are there, Casey. They're like, wow, this makes sense. So now that support starts to happen by the family member and everybody says, I understand where this came from. We've identified instead of used vocabulary words, name calling, you know, all of that that gets into that family mix. And I mean, I, I say this in air quotes because we're on a podcast, but people say, I'm not crazy. Like you're not. This is just, we've got to optimize your physiology. So it's such a big piece of it. 
Also, the environment is such a big piece, right? That's why addiction is a biopsychosocial model. But we've just been looking at the psychosocial part and biology saying, you know, we need to make sure we get eight to nine hours of sleep. We need to exercise. We need to eat well. We need to be hydrated. All of those things are obviously true. But now with technology, we can take a deeper dive into what is your individual physiology and what do we need to do for you? That is fantastic. And when I teach addiction to the brain to family members with our clients sitting next to them, and you can see light bulbs coming on when we talk about it. And I talk about the biological piece and say, okay, last estimate I heard about 40 to 60% of addiction is genetic. Right. That's a pretty big piece of the pie. But again, because genetics are not fade, they are influenced by our experiences, by our environment, by what we go through. So it's that interplay of things. And then, of course, the psychological part is how my mind reacts to all of that, right. which is a combination of genetics and experience. And being able to help people understand, okay, there's a big genetic component to this. And yet at the same time, it's not fate. You're not stuck that way. There are things that you can do about this. And I, I'm excited to hear more about the biological part, but I also talk to them a lot about, this is why you should address trauma. Absolutely. Because we have a certain number of clients that come in and they're saying like, man, I'm not talking about any of that stuff, you know? Yep. And I say, well, the things you were gonna take to the grave might take you to the grave. Bingo. So instead of that, what if we get in there, dig into some of those things? But one of the things that I love about the treatment center where I work at Windmill Wellness Ranch is that there is a lot of sort of forward-facing stuff looking and saying, what is the latest technology? What can we do right. to help clients understand, but also more importantly, be able to really operationalize that understanding? Absolutely. So we look a lot at dopamine biomarkers mm -hmm. um, and that dopamine, for those that aren't familiar with it, is really probably the number one uh, neurotransmitter that gets pointed at to mm -hmm. say like, okay, this is big in addiction, but it's not the only one in addiction. Right. You mentioned serotonin. Right. I actually also encourage our clients to look at oxytocin, especially around sex and love addiction, where I think it plays a pretty big role. But all of that also speaks to something that a lot of people struggle with, both clients and family members and members of society, and frankly, even medical doctors and psychiatrists struggling with the idea, just the basic question, is this really a disease? Right. Because I still see people come in and I'll say, okay, how many people have trouble with the idea that this is really like a medical disease? And usually people are almost shy about raising their hands because they know they're supposed to say, yes, it's a disease. Yeah. And yet there's the thought of like, oh, it's kind of a moral failing. It's, you know, it's a series of bad choices. I'm like, well, it is a series of bad choices, but those bad choices are happening for a reason. Right. They're us trying to really regulate ourselves. Right. So I'd love to get your perspective on some of that. Sure. So probably to me, the most exciting part of um, science that exists today is something called epigenetics. And that's exactly kind of what you were talking about, right? We're born with our DNA. Here's your cards, play them out. But now we know that our environment influences those genes. So that's where the perfect storm comes in. Someone says to me, but you know, I, my, my son, my daughter, perfect child till 21 years old. Everything was perfect. I don't understand what happened. Well, what happened at 21? Well, they went to college, they got a job, they started having all these new stressors, right? And for their DNA, it turned on those genes, turned off those genes that 
were related to the behavior that we're seeing now. All of a sudden, this is where the change came in. And that's epigenetics, how our DNA reacts to the environment. So it's all of it. That's why it is all of those things. So often when someone has an addiction, it starts by trying to self-medicate a diagnosed or an underdiagnosed condition or a trauma, right? So let's say, you know, there's anxiety and depression there and you with your buddies and, you know, you have your first beer and like, wow, this feels really good. I mean, I've had people tell me as early as three and four years old, they can remember their first drink and saying, I feel good, right? So it's that self-medicating for these undertones that we're not clear on, diagnosed on, diagnosed trauma, as you said. It's all of these things together. And to look at it as a moral flaw, yes, it's decisions that you make, but it's not a moral flaw. You know, if somebody has diabetes, we don't say, this is a moral flaw, and why are you so weak? Just don't eat that. Just don't drink that. We don't say that to them. But with somebody with an addiction, it's like, come on, man, why are you so weak? Just get with the program. Let's go. Stop doing it. Well, if they could, I'm sure they would, because no one wants to wake up and say, this is the day where I really mess up my life. None of us want to do that. You know, the National Institute of Drug Abuse defines addiction as a chronic relapsing, characterized by compulsive drug seeking, despite adverse consequences. Britannica defines a disease as any harmful deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism. When we are addicted, we are in that disease, that distress in our body. It is a disease, you know? And you add, like I said earlier, that biopsychosocial piece, it's all of those things together. That's what makes it so difficult because there's so many layers to it, as you know. Yeah. And if I may, I'm going to offer an idea. You said a child as early as three or four years old might take a drink of alcohol or engage in some behavior. I mean, food addiction, I'm going to argue, probably starts even earlier. Mm -hmm. I'll say in my own life, I'm in recovery around sex and love addiction was my first thing. And I can trace that back to between zero and three months old, first memory of it. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, I drank my first beer. Yeah, it felt good. But I want to actually say it's more like I feel okay for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many people's story of addiction starts with I felt okay for the first time. I felt accepted for the first time, including self acceptance. Mm-hmm. I felt loved for the first time, including loved by myself. Mm-hmm. I felt a sense of power or control that I didn't have before. And there's a couple of sort of famous in the recovery community commentators on the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, a couple of guys by the name of Joe and Charlie. That's all they go by. And there's recordings that get passed around to these two guys. And they're really funny. And they they mentioned this idea. There's these promises that are given in Alcoholics Anonymous saying, like, if you do this stuff, you're going to feel a new sense of ease and comfort. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us, all these kinds of things. And their comment on it was, Before AA gave me any of that, alcohol gave me that. Mm -hmm. When I first started drinking alcohol, my fear of people and economic insecurity went away. That might not be a good thing under the circumstances, but that's what happened. I suddenly felt okay in the world. And so many people, addiction really blossoms in adolescence, of course. And I say like, you know, think back to yourself at 12, 13 years old, and you feel okay for the first time at an age where most people don't feel like completely okay anyway, but you've never felt okay. And all of a sudden something comes along and says, drink this, smoke this, do this with this person, eat this, whatever. And you're suddenly like, I'm okay. 
And we never knew why we didn't feel okay. Well, it's really hard to talk to someone at that age and say, gosh, you really shouldn't do that. That's a bad idea. Why don't, why don't you put that down? Never do that again. It's hard enough to say that at 40 or 50. Right, exactly. And I say that to the family members too. You know, the family members often say, well, I can't relate to my loved one. I don't get why they do these things. And I'll say, well, think about your favorite coping mechanism. And I don't just mean binging on ice cream and Netflix, but like talking to your mom, reading a spiritual text is meaningful for you, talking to your higher power. And someone comes along and says, you can never do that again. Mm -hmm. How scary would that be? How much distress would you feel? That's how your loved one feels when they're giving up their addiction or getting out of whatever mental health behavior. These things feel like we're okay. And so when people do genetic research and say, that might actually be a genetic variation in how your amygdala receives dopamine, mm -hmm. that's a lot different than you've just been messed up all your life. Right, exactly. Or there's just something broken about you. It's more understandable, I think. It's something to hold on to and say, okay, objectively, this is what's happening. They're viewing the lens of their loved one subjectively through their interpretation of they just don't care or they're just trying to mess up or however they see it. Absolutely, Casey. Yeah, and I had a, a dad say at one point in an addiction treatment center I worked at a number of years ago in a family workshop. His dad came in and said, well, this seems like a really nice place, man. He says, but if there's a way to screw this up, and he used a more offensive term, but he said, if there's a way to screw this up, my son's going to find it. Oh. You know, he says, I'm not even sure why I'm here. I don't know why I'm bothering. Yeah. And I said, well, sir, I can't say if your son's going to get it this time or not, because he's swimming upstream against his own survival instinct. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what he's doing right now. In trying to get sober, he's swimming against his survival instinct, because his survival instinct is going to say, you need the addiction to keep going. Right. If the addiction is survival. I said, but you might be able to get something out of being here. Maybe you could learn to not take it personally. Mm -hmm. Because so many parents are going to look at it, especially, and say, this is a reflection of my parenting. Right. And honestly, when we start about, talking about the genetics, I'm like, oh, man, it's even more my fault. I'm like, oh, hold on a second. You did not pick out which genes your kid gets. Exactly. We, we may be getting there. I'm not sure that's a great idea <laughs> overall, because a lot of those genes, we don't know for sure what they're doing or what they're needed for. In the same way that when I teach addiction to the brain and talk about the amygdala, and someone will raise their hand and say, like, could we just get that carved out? I said, no, you don't want to live without your middle. <laughs> You're not going to make it very far. Yeah, we all come into the game of life with something. You know, some families have cardiovascular, exactly. some families have cancers, you know? So it's, to your point, it's not, oh, you brought this, you brought this. It's not that at all. We're all grateful to be here and we're made up of what we are. So there's an opportunity, I hope, in all of the genetic research. And I tell my clients and the family members that the reason I teach addiction to the brain my hope is that all this information will help you drop shame and blame. Stop pointing fingers and stop trying to figure out whose fault is it. Because you're right, we don't do that with cancer. We don't do it with diabetes. We don't do it with COPD. We don't, most of the time these days, do it with schizophrenia or bipolar. We don't say whose fault is that. We recognize this person has got a big genetic hurdle. It's not the only genes they have, and it's not the only defining thing about them. Exactly. It's just one factor. So with the parents saying like, oh no, I gave them these genes. Well, you gave them lots of good genes too. And addiction is not one gene. It's a suite of things that cascade and some of them trigger others and all that kind of stuff. So when we look at that, hopefully we can get out of the shame and blame game and just say, okay, here's this 
partly genetic, partly environmental, partly internal belief and stressor disease that can be addressed. Absolutely. And so I'd love to hear from you kind of where you see the work that you're doing, helping to bring hope to people. Oh, sure. That's a great point. You know, as I said, when we go over the results for the individual, sometimes there's tears and it's tears of joy because it's a relief. It's a sigh of, wow, I'm not just trying to create this monster inside of me. You know, this is what's happening inside of me physiologically. And if we can identify something, we can then treat it. And if we identify it objectively, instead of guessing, we have a much better chance of getting to where we need to go. So it's full of hope. It really is because our genetics play a role, but they are not our destiny. And the most exciting part is understanding this epigenetics portion, that it can change. And so we look at in, in the biochemical pathways and say, okay, what needs to be supported along this pathway to get this person to optimization? That's a plan for somebody. You know, that's a blueprint of who you are and here's the plan. And it makes sense. So hope, absolutely. So I wonder if I can ask really frankly, for instance, Alcoholics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, some of the recovery fellowships, all also say, here's a plan. Here's some things you can do. Great statistics on people doing this and it works, but it's hard for people to stick with that plan. It's hard for people to follow through. You know, there's a reason AA or Smart Recovery or addiction treatment centers don't have 100% success rate or 95% success rate because it's hard to change human behavior. And I wonder when people get this genetic information and you're able to say, here are some things that can distinctly help, how difficult or easy is it from your experience or observation for people to stick with that plan? It's been our experience that they are much more likely to stick with it. Uh, like 90% is our number of people that follow through because they're seeing in black and white here, 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 right? And, you know, we're all human. We all try our own experiments. So it's like, I know I'm doing, say, six months of looking at these pathways change, but I'm feeling good right now. I'm going to stop it. And then 100% of the time is like, wow, this was doing something, but it was so incremental that I was like, yeah, I think I can stop now. Okay. I want you to feel the difference. And that's really powerful because that's part of human nature too. You know, we think we got this. And some things need to be supported more than others, depending on that individual. Thank you for that. Because part of what I work with as a therapist is helping people to remove the internal roadblocks to change. I always tell them, look, if all we were doing at the treatment center was teaching you about recovery fellowships, saying, hey, go to Smart Recovery, go to AA, do something that's going to help you, um, we just hand out pamphlets. We'd be a drive-through treatment center. That would be great. But we all have things inside us, like you said, that'll say like, well, maybe I don't need to do this thing that's working really well. Maybe I can like wander off the path a little bit. And yes, the consequences are sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but not quite inevitable. But certainly the majority of people will struggle if they stop doing the thing that's working for them, including family members. And so family members will relapse into old behavior faster than the person with the addiction. Like as soon as the treatment's done, they'll say like, okay, I don't need to look at myself anymore. We don't need to look at the family patterns. We don't need to look at any of those things. We'll just keep rolling. So it's exciting to hear people sticking with it or more importantly, I'd say being able to come back to it, being able to say like, okay, hey, I wandered off the path. Let me get back on the path. 
And that is the good news about any of these things, is I see that once somebody has been willing to look at themselves in a different way, whether it's through a spiritual path, looking at their genetics, looking at old trauma, just deciding they're going to deal with it. Once people have started to look at the possibility of change, they're much more likely to come back to that again later. Even if they say, screw this, it isn't for me, I'm out. Well, they may have waited 20 years to get help the first time, but now they're only going to suffer for six months or a year before they say, okay, yeah, I can use some help, uncle. And then maybe they wander off the path again, like two weeks later, they're like, I need help. We're seeing people start to get the idea that life could feel differently. And that's really exciting for me, whether they're family members or the person directly with the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Just feel it for a little bit and say, you know, what is that like? And imagine the rest of your life having the potential to be that same way. Yeah. And that seems like a great place for us to take just a moment and hear from one of our sponsors. And then we'll be right back with the rest of our interview. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support and our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, and information on both my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. Both are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's go ahead and have the rest of our interview with Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Now, if I may, I'm going to ask because in this podcast, we tend to talk in a lot of personal terms and what's going on. And of course, you don't have to share anything you don't want to, but you were talking about, okay, when I first got married, this debate was going on, which by the way, really touched something personal for me because I found I was adopted from the get-go. There was never any question that I was adopted. What I didn't know is that my birth parents had been living about an hour away from me the entire time. And we reconnected. My wife would say that that reconnection, which was very difficult, it was not an easy reconnection. It was not like, oh, great, we're all together again. I didn't know them. But I was partly curious about the genetics and what is the family history and learning more about them and starting to recognize certainly elements, especially of sex and love addiction to both of my birth parents, one of whom says like, yep, I can see that. They was like, no, not sure what you're talking about still to this day. I'm like, okay. But I was starting to look and see family patterns. And I didn't know really much of anything about genetics. When my daughter was born, I was not a social worker. I wasn't even looking at going back to school at that point. But I knew my daughter was in more danger than average, right? I knew that. I knew at the time I would have said by age 10, I was taking a swan dive into my addiction. And I wouldn't have put those words on it, but that's what was happening. So by the time my daughter was 10, I sat her down and said, look, this runs in the family. And by then, by the time she was 10, I'd been in recovery for about eight years or so. So I was able to say, there are some things you can do to help maybe avert this outcome for you because I'm in recovery from addiction. Your mom's in recovery from addiction. So you've got it from both sides. There's a lot of it all over our family in various ways. Some of it food, some of it relationships. You know, it's not all chemicals, but there's certainly chemical stuff as well. So just letting you know this is in the family and talking to her about this idea and saying, here's some things you can do 
And she has gone through some tremendous mental health struggles, but she never got addicted to anything so far. I'm saying knock on wood, but she's 26 now. And so she's come through adolescence. She made it to the other side without getting addicted to anything. And that's kind of a big deal. She's aware of it. And she did grab onto some of the tools. So if I can ask in your case, your daughter is just born and you're thinking like, okay, I need to do something about this. You're doing all this research. I can ask, how did it turn out? So my husband and I divorced. He died at 42. I'm now 63. So that was a long time ago. My daughter, fortunately, I raised her with the tools and the, the knowledge and the openness instead of, you know, let's make believe this never happened and this isn't part of reality. And she is a very well put together 32 year old woman now with her own two children, 22 year olds, that she's raising with that same openness and acceptability, not acceptable behavior and all of it that's going to go on. So let's hope that by identifying, dealing with and moving forward with what's available, that stories can change and they can. Is that something we see then in your family and in mine is that, yeah, you can change the intergenerational patterns. Yep. You can't change the genetics, but you can change, again, how those genetics are going to express to environment. I mean, you're a parent, you know, you can't control your child's environment. You can't control their experiences, but you can say exactly those things. Yep. We talk openly in this family. We seek and accept help. Given that I was going about it through a recovery fellowship that encouraged spirituality, I said, you don't have to do any particular spiritual thing, but spirituality helps a lot of people. So you might want to find a spiritual life, you know, be open to therapy if it comes up or something like that, where you feel like you need help with that. Connect with other people. Don't get too isolated, all these sorts of things. And she grabbed onto most of that. Uh, she went on a self-guided tour of pretty much every religious and spiritual institution in the place. And it being Taos, there was like Catholic church, various Christian churches, Jewish center, uh, Hindu temple. She went to all of them just to kind of see, is there something that fit? And she eventually, I think, found a version of something within herself that seemed like a good fit. And I can't help but think that all of those are protective factors and things that potentially influence if she has kids what they're up against, whether she adopts or has kids genetically. And there's decent arguments given our family genetics for either course of action. But I wonder also, there are so many people now who are discovering things about their genetics through home kits and you know mail-in tests and stuff like that, become surprised to find out things about relatives they didn't know they have, maybe discovered in that moment that they're adopted or related in parts of the world they didn't see coming. And I like to think that the greater popularity of those things makes it easier for people to embrace what you're doing. I would say yes, for sure. Because as I said, I'm 63. When I was in my early years, the shame and blame was such more of a focus. We're still not where would be the perfect sweet spot to be, but we're much better than where we were in having these conversations. So that I think is helping along the way too, for people to say, okay, it's a combination of all these things. And why would I not look at all of those things? Why would I not try those tools that have been successful for others? Why would I not try these diagnostics that have been successful for others? So there's much more of an openness now for people to explore and understanding the, hey, you know what, seven and a half billion people in the world there's seven and a half billion different sets of DNA. Why don't we actually start to embrace that and find out in every aspect of our life who we are? Absolutely. And 
as a guy who works with a lot of people around self-esteem and their psychology, I can tell you, you say, why would I not do it? A lot of times because people are kind of afraid to find out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they'll say, man, I don't know who I am. And I always point out, if all it is, is I don't know who I am, then that would just be curiosity. Yeah. But it becomes a scary question because I'm afraid I do know the answer and it's bad news. Right. So some people may shy away from this stuff in self-exploration, genetic exploration, any of those things, because they're afraid it's just going to be terrible, terrible news. And I always say it's so much better news than you think. Right. You're probably a much better person than you think you are. Yeah, yeah. And the fear part kind of for some people is still, you know, if this is my story and it's a woe is me because I have all of this and... I can possibly move past that story. What becomes my story? Who's going to listen to me? And there's still people with that kind of fear. Like if it's not a woe is me, who's going to listen to me? Will I have any friends left? Well, you know, because I'm always my sad story. Some people want to hold on to that. I think the more and more conversations that are had, like what you do, Casey, on your podcast and open people into this discussion, all of a sudden that discussion becomes okay. You know, I heard this podcast and it's okay to start talking about these things. And it, it makes a difference. It moves the needle. And so that leads to a question I'd want to ask you, what's your hope for the future? Uh, my hope for the future is that people embrace the tools that are available to make them the best version of themselves. And like I just said, you know, there's seven and a half billion people make it your best you not to be everybody else, but employ everything that's available today. Take advantage of everything that's available today to become your best you. And then you have that life, you know, you have your best life. You got one shot at it, go for it. That's my thing. It's all about the bigger life. And we're here and it's supposed to be a gift to start being able to live it for the gift that it's supposed to be. That's it. Beautifully said. Thank you. So if people are curious about your work and want to find out more about your company or where they can get testing, all that sort of thing, where do they go? So website is Wired for Addiction, all spelled out, wiredforaddiction.com. Go in there, you know, take a look what's on there. We offer a 15-minute complimentary consultation if this is something that possibly could be a tool for you to use. We'll discuss that, but we work with individuals coming straight to us. We work with treatment centers. We work within the criminal justice space. So we're trying to help a lot of people in a lot of different areas that could use what we have. Very cool. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, it's been fantastic talking with you. Any last words you would want to say to family members or people listening out there that might struggle with these issues directly? Well, I, I would go back to what you said, Casey. You know, is there hope? And yes, there's hope. Employ what's available. Go out. Seek it use it and make your life better and your loved one's life better. Dr. Evelyn Higgins, it has been fantastic having you on the program and perhaps we'll have you back on sometime. Great talking with you. Thank you so much, Casey. My pleasure. And that's our interview with Dr. Evelyn Higgins of Wired for Addiction. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about addiction to the family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. 
Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey. <laughs>